Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. This is True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Week by week, you'll hear the true stories behind the operations that have shaped the world we live in. True Spies. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. Was he witting of the CIA's interest in the organization? Could he perhaps be called a CIA agent? I'm Sofia DiMartino, and this is True Spies from Spyscape Studios. The Mighty Wurlitzer. This is a story about youthful idealism and what happens when not-so-ideal truths come to light. Its cast of characters is a who's-who list of soon-to-be movers and shakers, including the future feminist icon Gloria Steinem. At the centre of this story is an organisation called the NSA, but not the NSA true spies listeners might expect. No, the United States National Student Association. By the mid-60s, the NSA is starting to leak this kind of notion that liberal idealism and anti-communism, that they go naturally hand in hand, is really starting to fall apart. Imagine a time when the highest priority of the government was in line with some of the chief motivations of activists on university campuses. In the early years of the Cold War, both the US government and the country's largest student groups had a shared mission to bring an end to global communism. But before long, their interests appeared to diverge. In the mid-1960s, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, better known to the world as LBJ, was ramping up the number of troops deployed to Vietnam despite widespread disapproval of Americans' involvement in the conflict. Young people communicated their distaste for the war by chanting, Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Any lingering camaraderie between American students and their government was dashed for good in 1967, thanks, in part, to a new student fundraiser appointed by the NSA. This is a young man called Michael Wood. And in the process of raising funds, Wood learns about the CIA's relationship with the organization. Someone at the top of the NSA had shared some major secrets with Michael Wood. For a few months, Wood kept them under wraps, but then his conscience got the better of him. Wood uh, eventually decides to spill the beans. This is what he spilled the beans on. For 15 years after the end of World War II, the CIA covertly funded the National Student Association and hand-picked its leaders. It was an effort to gain and maintain control of young people, to cement their allegiance to the United States, both at home and abroad. It was also just one string in an intricate web of tactics meant to wipe out communism around the world. The influence of those tactics was enormous, at least until 1967, 
when it all began to unravel. In many ways, just how the relationship between the agency and the NSA played out is still a matter of mystery. Even some of the major players in this story were left in the dark about whether and how they were entangled with the US intelligence agency. Among those most in the know is your guide for this episode. My name is Hugh Wilford. I'm a professor of American history at California State University, Long Beach. I am a historian of the CIA. Like many of the subjects of his research, Hugh never meant to get involved in American covert operations. Initially, I was just interested in American intellectuals and especially American intellectual life around the middle of the 20th century. And then I came across this weird story about how a group of literary critics, writers in New York in the 1940s and 1950s were covertly funded by the CIA. And, uh, you know, I was intrigued. Why was the CIA funding a bunch of literary critics? And I sort of began researching that story. Hugh had his hands full because it wasn't just writers and literary critics and students the CIA had cozied up to. It was cultural and religious associations too. Labour organisations, feminist initiatives, racial and ethnic advocacy groups, cultural tastemakers, filmmakers, musicians. The next thing I knew, I'd really sort of swap from being a, an intellectual historian to an intelligence historian. Hugh had stumbled on a sprawling phenomenon that had begun unfolding in the years after the Second World War. It involved a vast array of cultural and social organisations, all of which, to the public, seemed to move to the beat of their own drum. But in secret for many years, they were all being orchestrated to play the same tune. There was a CIA chief, Frank Wisner, who liked to compare what he was doing with somebody playing a mighty Wurlitzer organ. Because he had all these contacts in the press, he'd set up various front groups, uh, he even had contacts in Hollywood, and he liked to talk about how he could play any propaganda tune that he liked. A Wurlitzer organ, a massive, hulking instrument. If you're not familiar, picture multiple keyboards flanked with dozens of pedals and pipes, decked out with bells and whistles. Literally, bells and whistles plus xylophones, triangles, you get the idea. Together, all of that sound makes it seem as though there's a full orchestra in action, when in fact it's just one nimble musician. And in the CIA of the 1950s, the music maker in command was agency chief Frank Wisner. And it kind of conveys the idea that he was in control of everything, right? He could play any tune that he wanted to. Although actually in practice, it wasn't quite that easy for him. There's a reason that the CIA's mighty Wurlitzer, like its namesake, fell out of fashion. While the CIA had control of its massive propaganda instrument in the aftermath of World War II, by the second half of the 1960s, Wisner's orchestra was no longer playing in tune with the national mood. Sometimes some of the outlets and the groups and individuals that he was trying to use just for propaganda purposes, it turned out that they had ideas of their own about how to 
win the Cold War, the battle for hearts and minds. Because CIA operations involved these people who are ostensibly private and often had their own agendas, their own reasons for wanting to go into battle with the communists, it wasn't always easy for the CIA to completely control them. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The origins of the CIA's entanglement with the National Student Association date back many years earlier, to the early 20th century. That's because the first seeds were planted not in the United States, but in the Soviet Union. Even before World War II, Soviet leaders were embedding their ideologies into influential organizations around the world. The communists had been doing it for decades and they started doing it again immediately after World War II. So the Americans were very, actually quite late to this and really to some extent all of this was defensive. It was a reaction to stuff that the communists were already doing. It wasn't just a reaction, it was a mirror image. When US intelligence began to get its tentacles into social and cultural groups, it was taking a page directly out of the Soviet playbook. Originally, there was an organization called the Communist International, which was an organization formed of representatives of uh, various local communist parties, which really effectively operated as a way for Soviet communists to control communist movements elsewhere in the world. The Second World War saw a brief period of goodwill between the United States and the Soviet Union, who were united in the fight against Nazi Germany, Japan and Italy. Hugh says that as a gesture of goodwill to their allies, the Communist International, or Comintern, was put on ice. But then when the alliance fell apart after World War II, it was effectively revived in the form of the Communist Information Bureau, which was shortened to Cominform. So the Cominform was really the Comintern reborn and was able to draw on all this experience and list of front contacts that the Soviets had going back for decades. Cominform had an expansive remit. In essence, it was a propaganda vehicle with the primary aim of ginning up communist goodwill across Europe. To do that, communist officials mobilized various front organizations that they could manipulate to do their bidding. The British had already adopted Cominform's tactics before the US showed up late to the party. But in typical American fashion, when the United States decided to follow suit, it did so with bells on. So they had these advantages that the Soviets didn't always, despite all the Soviet experience in the field of front operations. They were able to draw on advertising, on PR, you know, on Madison Avenue, right? American sort of sales techniques were the big advantage, really, that the US brought to the Cold War because people involved literally spoke about it in these terms, that they were looking to sell the US cause to overseas audiences. So, you know, they had access to this range of techniques and even advertising firms got involved in this operation. Propaganda was big business in post-war America, whether consumers recognised it or not. But the Americans also waged a quieter, less commercial sort of war against communism. There too, they borrowed tactics from their enemy. 
the communists had already gotten involved in international student politics. The International Union of Students formed just after World War II. It was formed with communist backing and communist encouragement. So the CIA was concerned that the West might be sort of losing the battle for hearts and minds of young people throughout the world. But why would the Soviet Union and the CIA both make a play for students? Surely there were more powerful groups they could target. There is this adage that the student leaders of today are the world leaders of tomorrow. It's this perception that you can't really afford to lose this demographic that could be so influential in the future. Initially, the focus is on making sure that Western Europe doesn't sort of fall to communist ideology. But then as the 50s wears on and the sort of focus of the Cold War is increasingly shifting to what was known as the Third World, there is this growing interest in making sure that rising young leaders of Third World countries go to the American camp rather than the communist. In other words, it wasn't just American hearts and minds that the CIA desired to win to their side. American students could be a conduit, they believed, in the spreading of anti-communist ideology in the places most vulnerable to Soviet influence. The CIA would disseminate their propaganda in precisely the manner Cominform disseminated theirs, with the assistance of front organizations, many of whose members would be left in the dark about the arrangement. And one front group was perfectly positioned for the job the U.S. National Student Association. It was founded in 1947 by a group of American liberals looking to combat communist influences on international student affairs. The NSA had a national office in Madison, Wisconsin, and you might think that would be its headquarters. But in fact, the NSA had an international office as well, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of Harvard University. From there, it extended its reach across the Atlantic. All the better for the CIA. It took the battle to communists at international student conferences and through various other programs. Initially, I guess, focus on trying to make sure that students in Western European countries were anti-communist and pro-American, but then increasingly active in the developing world. With such a broad international influence, you can see why the NSA would make an appealing organisation for the intelligence agency to get its hooks in, which the CIA did. Fast. It began as a genuinely private entity, but within a few years of its founding, the CIA was systematically funding its international program. Initially, the money just goes through some private businessmen who I guess are happy to have CIA officers as friends and they're persuaded just to kind of hand over checks to the NSA. But then within a few years, by the early 50s, the CIA creates pass-through foundations, you know, apparently private charities, which actually are sort of effectively laundering funds for the CIA. You've heard of shell companies used to hold and hide the assets of oligarchs. That's essentially what the US was setting up to send money to the NSA. And while this was a covert operation, 
plenty of students were aware of what was going on. The leaders of the NSA, they're a little apprehensive about getting mixed up with the CIA and several officers are like, you know, should we be accepting this sort of money? And some people think fairly strongly that they shouldn't. But despite their reservations, the agency's reach in the organisation grew quickly. The CIA also increasingly controls the international office located in Cambridge of the NSA and makes sure effectively that its own candidates at annual elections, at annual meetings of the organisation, that its own candidates get elected to offices in the international office. And indeed, sometimes actually serving CIA officers are representing the NSA overseas at international meetings. One imagines a greying operations officer trying to pass himself off as an undergraduate by stammering out a few lines of teenage slang. But as Hugh describes it, the whole setup was much more subtle. In part because these two organizations, the CIA and the NSA, they shared the same ideals. They were more or less on the same page. I think to some extent, you know, there's a lot of youthful idealism around and people who genuinely see it as sort of save the third world for the Americans, make sure that they're not, you know, hoodwinked by the communists into becoming pro-Soviet. But I think there's also, you know, a few people who perhaps have a notion that the money is coming from somewhere. Some are a little murky. But was any of this really all that bad? The CIA wasn't spying on the NSA, or at least that wasn't their primary task. Some NSA officers were tasked with gathering information about what was going on. So there was espionage going on, but it wasn't, the NSA wasn't serving primarily as a front for espionage. It was looking to ensure that these world leaders of tomorrow were pro-American and not pro-communist. And that was all well and good with the few students who were in on the secret, so long as they too felt pro-American. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. In order to achieve its goals with the NSA, the CIA knew it would need to embrace young individuals fighting for progressive causes, which is why, in 1950, it came to support a charismatic activist named Allard K. Lowenstein. Lowenstein, who was, by all accounts, an absolutely brilliant orator, just didn't hold back in his speeches to international audiences. There are official records which suggest that the CIA was actually found him almost too anti-communist, too much of a, uh, a loose cannon. Almost too much, but not too much for their purposes. The CIA, uh, I think, pulled some strings because he had a reputation as being, in addition to his sort of liberal activism, he was also very vehement anti-communist. And so the CIA was interested in supporting him within the organization. By his early 20s, Lowenstein had made a name for himself as an opponent of the Jim Crow laws that perpetuated racial segregation in the American South. 
Years later, he would go on to speak out against the apartheid regime in South Africa. He'd later become a member of the US House of Representatives. At the time he was made president of the NSA, anti-communism was a key tenet of his personal ideology. In that sense, he was very much aligned with the CIA. But just how aligned he really was, well, that may have been a different story. Was he witting of the CIA's interest in the organization? Could he perhaps be called a CIA agent? This is a question that has gripped historians like Hugh ever since the program came to light. Not just about Allard Lowenstein, but about many of the people who were involved in the organization. Were they, in the CIA parlance, witting? Meaning, were they clued into where their money was coming from and how decisions about their leadership were being made? According to Hugh, Lowenstein's wittingness is almost beside the point. He may not have understood the machinations of the organization he was leading, but he was still doing the CIA's bidding, with much more zeal than the US government itself would ever be able to express. This is the sort of minor pattern I noticed in these sorts of CIA operations, is that several of them featured young people like this who were really gung-ho, liberal anti-communists and determined to denounce communism to sort of any audience that would listen and actually too sort of in your face for the CIA that was trying to sort of soft pedal this a little bit because it didn't want to offend neutralist opinion in Europe and then in the third world by sort of coming on too strong and being too pro-American and anti-communist. Years later, once the CIA's involvement came to light, Lowenstein denied knowing about the NSA's arrangement with the agency. And those claims were later backed up. A memo came to light indicating that actually he was unwitting. He didn't know about the CIA's interest. But despite a shared interest in anti-communism, a lot of NSA affiliates never wanted their wittingness to be revealed. It wasn't a good look. I think a great many people, you know, who claim they didn't know that the CIA was behind their apparently uh, non-government organizations were actually not telling the entire truth. One individual stands out as a notable exception. Gloria Steinem, to her credit, I think, really does. Gloria Steinem, feminist hero, journalist, and CIA asset? Like Allard Lowenstein, the young Gloria Steinem was an idealist with charisma to burn. Her engagement with the CIA predates her days as a freelance journalist or feminist campaigner, like many other 20-somethings, in 1958, she had yet to take off in her career. Gloria Steinem is, you know, a young, very smart, very talented graduate student, but she hasn't yet got a job that she really wants. She is in India on a fellowship and is spotted by an undercover CIA officer. And then on her return to the US, she is persuaded to set up an office in Cambridge near to Harvard to sort of educate American students about what the Soviets are doing in terms of trying to influence international student politics. But more specifically, there is a Soviet-organized international student meeting coming up in Vienna in 1959. Steinem has never denied that she was made witting. A big job offer was on the table, 
and she knew precisely who would be paying her salary. She is given the money to start preparing a delegation of young American student leaders to attend this conference, partly to sort of disrupt it because it is a Soviet front operation, but also to try and win over representatives from developing world nations who were there to the American cause, you know, persuade them that America has their interests at heart and is equally as idealistic and sincere as the communist powers. You might be thinking, this all sounds a bit unlike the Gloria Steinem I know. But the darkest days of civil unrest and violence and political upheaval that would strike the United States were still to come. And the reputation of the nation's highest intelligence agency hadn't yet been dealt its first significant blows. We'll get to that. Steinem didn't know what was around the corner when she accepted the job in the late 1950s. She didn't have a problem with it because she thought it was a good cause. She was impressed by the CIA officers that she met as she thought they were as idealistic as she was, that they had the best interests of third world students uh, at heart. And so for all of those reasons, she was very happy to be involved. And ultimately, so was the CIA. They'd made a big bet on a woman in her early 20s. And that bet paid off. She did a great job getting American students over to Vienna and really doing a pretty good job of disrupting the event. She oversaw a press putting out critical coverage of the event as it was ongoing. Her unit hired a jazz band, which sort of played loudly in the background, kind of celebrating American jazz, but also sort of disrupting proceedings. She made sure that Polish emigre Spigniew Brzezinski uh, was part of the American delegation. Another big name, Jimmy Carter's future national security advisor. And he went into the Russian camp and used his knowledge of Russian to sow dissension between people attending from Eastern Bloc countries. So it was all judged a tremendous success. You know, the Kennedy White House apparently was delighted by Steinem's work. It was a perfect marriage of youthful idealism and American ideology. But youth fades and times change. And as the US entered the 1960s, circumstances began to evolve. Back in the late 50s, the sort of young idealistic students weren't necessarily long hairs. You know, it was before Vietnam had become the cause that it did and before the counterculture. And, you know, Gloria Steinem looked pretty square, you know, in the late 50s. <laughs> Steinem wasn't the only person in the organisation who was witting, of course. Plenty of other student officials had been made aware of the role the CIA was playing in keeping the NSA on message. And as those young people experienced a widening gap between their ideals and those of the agency, their willingness to play along to the tune of the mighty Wurlitzer began to falter. Increasingly, as the 1960s comes and young idealistic Americans, pardon, thanks largely to the Vietnam War, are less inclined to see America as a force for good in the world and to marry liberalism with anti-communism, they start to ask, is this something that our government should be doing? Is this something our organisation should be doing? One of those witting students with doubts about the CIA's influence was sitting at the very top of the organisation. 
He was the national president of the NSA, and his name was Philip Sherburne. Philip Sherburne decides he wants to try and flush the CIA out of the organization, so he starts trying to raise other funds and advertises for and appoints a fundraiser. And this is a young man called Michael Wood. Ah, yes. Remember him? Michael Wood, the truth-telling fundraiser. In the process of raising funds, Wood learns about the CIA's relationship with the organization. He realizes that all of the organization's previous funders were in fact sort of passed through fake foundations. Sherburn experienced deep ambivalence about the secret links between the two organizations. For Michael Wood, it was a little more black and white. He was inclined to blow the whistle. Phil Sherburn, he wants the CIA gone, tries to persuade him not to because he's trying to get the CIA out without damaging the organization's image, which is why he's trying to get genuinely private funding for it. And meanwhile, CIA is leaning on Phil Sherburn and saying, no, this needs to remain a CIA operation. But for Sherburn, this wasn't just a tussle with an employer or a benefactor. The NSA's national president had something far more important on the line. One of the things that the CIA sort of dangled to NSA officers for the, in return for their cooperation, they could get draft deferments. And the CIA says, yeah, and, and if we withdraw our funding and our protection, you will probably be drafted. Nearly 400,000 men of eligible age were drafted to fight in Vietnam in 1966. And young men like Sherburn were being offered a very attractive out. Play along with the CIA and you can be guaranteed that your number won't be called up. That left Sherburn caught between defending his principles and defending his own life. Because it looks like this is going to be exposed the CIA is sort of starting to really resort to dirty tricks at this point. You know, what had been initially this quite sort of harmonious consensual relationship becomes kind of abusive in 1967. Wood wrestled with the implications of what he'd learned for months. But finally, he decided to turn to the press. One afternoon at the Algonquin Hotel in New York City. Wood sat down with an editor at a national magazine. He'd chosen the publication carefully, knowing they'd be sympathetic to his cause. This West Coast magazine called Ramparts, which has become a sort of mouthpiece for the emerging student new left on American campuses, is a really surprisingly glossy magazine for a sort of radical new left kind of underground publication. It's a really significant sort of institution in terms of the 1960s counterculture and new left. It has an important relationship with the Black Panther Party as well. The leading Panther, Eldritch Cleaver, is on the editorial board. And unlike, you know, most most underground newspapers of the day, you know, it has a big national readership outside of university campuses. The previous year, Ramparts had run an expose on the CIA's covert training of South Vietnamese police at Michigan State University. Wood had every reason to believe that the editor would want to run with another scoop about agency misdeeds. Sitting in the Algonquin dining room, the editor was taken aback. Why would the CIA want to sidle up to a bunch of long-haired kids? Nevertheless, he took the story back to Ramparts and their journalists began to look into Wood's allegations. 
these young radical reporters launched their own investigation, uh, just using the tax records of the fake foundations. They work out what's been going on, and this isn't just the NSA, there's a whole bunch of other organizations involved as well. Meanwhile, American intelligence officials caught wind of the investigation. The CIA, realizing that this is all about to come out, decides to try and sort of anticipate the story and sort of get control of the narrative by holding a press conference about it, getting the NSA to hold a press conference. But uh, then Ramparts, the editors say they scoop themselves. They pay for a, a full page advertisement in the New York Times, basically conveying the essence of their story in order to sort of beat the CIA to the exposure and that works. So it's a very effective strategy. The advertisement drove plenty of readers to the Ramparts investigation, and it also got the Times involved. Its own reporters start investigating this story, exposing CIA links, not just to American students, but American labor groups and, and organizations of intellectuals and uh, many other entities as well. Slowly, it became apparent to the American public that all the bells and whistles of the Wurlitzer organ had been playing the CIA's tune. Wood's allegations to ramparts were just the tip of the iceberg. After all this is exposed, a lot of the organizations don't survive it. There's sort of a lot of infighting rows break out between those who were witting or were denying they were witting unconvincingly and those who were genuinely, genuinely didn't know that the CIA was involved. Someone who doesn't deny her involvement is Gloria Steinem. And in the court of public opinion, her decision to lead the festival in Vienna nearly a decade prior hasn't fared so well after all. She's very candid about this. She says she knew all along that the CIA was behind it because she had been made witting. But I think her honesty uh, over this situation sort of really came back to haunt her. And I think it's actually one of the things that still has the sort of potential to kind of like wound her a little bit. You know, this claiming that she was a CIA agent, which is sometimes how it's been phrased. Ms. Steinem's office declined an interview for this podcast. The late 60s was a divisive time in American politics, but condemnation of the CIA's involvement in groups like the NSA became a bipartisan issue. It's pretty devastating for the CIA itself when all this comes out. It's really the first time that Americans learn en masse that their government has been systematically misleading them. It's okay for the CIA to be active overseas, possibly even involved in operations like overthrowing governments. But for the CIA to be this active at home, you know, funding these apparently homegrown organizations, that really troubles a lot of Americans. So does the fact that they use students for the job. There's the CIA sort of rather ensnared, young, idealistic people exploiting their desire to do good in the world. And that is the kind of theme of all of this, that sort of, you know, cynical, older people in positions of power have rather abused their relationship with the student officers and their organization. The loss of trust from the American people was a major blow to the CIA. The message from both right and left was clear. Intelligence officials had no place butting into private organizations or the lives of young people, at least not at home on American soil. 
the Ramparts revelations in 1967 are really the beginning of a series of scandals affecting the CIA that culminate in a series of congressional investigations in 1975, which really wreck the agency's public image and severely rein in its powers. The CIA has never been quite as free to operate and as unaccountable ever since. The floodgates had been opened, and you'd think that would be the end of domestic spying on social groups. And yet, the worst violations of public trust were yet to come. Next time on True Spies, we'll look at another incursion into the lives of civilians just two years after the Ramparts revelations. COINTELPRO was a clandestine program that J. Edgar Hoover had started in the 60s. And it targeted all the movements, but in particular the black movement. And he said their motive was to disrupt, destroy, and neutralize the Panthers by any means necessary. It's a harrowing chapter in FBI history, and this time the consequences are fatal. And there was one other COINTELPRO objective that was specifically an order from Hoover to the FBI offices, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the black masses. You can learn more about the CIA's covert relationship with the National Student Association in Hugh Wilford's book, The Mighty Wurlitzer, How the CIA Played America. I'm Sophia DiMartino. Join us next week for another liaison with True Spies. Disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the subject. These stories are told from their perspective and their authenticity should be assessed on a case-by-case basis.